0: Let's open the Scriptures together to the book of Zechariah. We're going to be uh, taking a, a little break from the Gospel of John and work our way to the marking of our Savior's death on Good Friday in the Gospel of Luke. This morning, the entry of our Savior into Jerusalem and the background to that, or at least part of the background, is found in Zechariah chapter 9, second last book of the Old Testament. The Lord God gives certain prophecies through, this, through Zechariah, so we're going to read chapter 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth, It, too, shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword." Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19 we're going to focus on the verses 28 through 40. And just to help us with the context, I want to read verse 11 as well. So, Luke 19, verse 11. And the Lord Jesus is speaking to the crowds. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So then follows the parable of the minas and the point that the Lord makes. One of the points He makes is that the king will go away and there will be a, a time of waiting before the kingdom comes in its fullness. And then we pick up the story at verse 28. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, would cry out. That's as far as we'll go this morning. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from hymn 29, which puts to song, the uh, entry of our Savior into Jerusalem as found in our text. So we'll sing hymn 29, all three stanzas. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, what sort of king is Jesus? That's a theme in our text, and it's been a question all through the ministry of Jesus Right from the beginning, even before He was conceived, the angel had told His mother Mary that the son that would uh, be born to her would inherit the throne of His father David. We ourselves have seen in John's gospel that early on His disciples recognized Him as Israel's Messiah. They called Him King Nathaniel when He first meets Jesus says, Master, Rabbi, you are Israel's king. And also here in Luke 19, we read that the crowds were expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. That's verse 11. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, they exalt him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So there were plenty of people looking upon Jesus as Israel's king, but was He the sort of king that they expected? Is Jesus the sort of king we expect? Is His kingdom the kind of kingdom we really want, the kind of kingdom that we're ready for? I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme, King Jesus approaches His royal city in humiliation. We'll see His humble ride, His hollow reception, and the hateful rejection. One of the first things that stands out in our text is how in control Jesus is of the situation. When you first read this and and what the crowds do, you might have the impression that there was a a spontaneity to it all, but instead we find there's a, a careful orchestration of these events. It starts in verse 29, when He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, He sent two of His disciples, go into the village in front of you and do a few things. So, Christ is very deliberate and purposeful as He comes close to Jerusalem. Those little villages of Bethany and Bethphage are about three kilometers from the city. It's not then the crowds that take action, it's not the disciples that take action, but it is the Lord Jesus who sets up His final approach. This is His final public approach to Jerusalem. And when we think about that, that's a little bit odd, isn't it, a little bit unusual. Because normally Jesus tried to keep a low profile as much as He could. He, he spent most of His time in the north in Galilee in the smaller towns. He went from village to village. He didn't really go to the metropolises of the north. And many times after Jesus would heal a person, He would say to that person, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. Why? So that Jesus could continue to go about His work and not be derailed by enormous and raucous crowds. He wanted to to do His work of preaching and teaching. But here, Jesus organizes a crowd. Here He does the opposite. He plans His public entry into the capital, or better said, He plans His public entry into His royal city the city of His great father David, the city of the kings of Israel. And why does He do that? Why does He do that now? Because the time is short, and that makes the time ripe for Jesus to publicly confirm what many have been saying throughout His ministry, that yes, He is Israel's king. Jesus is heading for the cross. He's only days away. He only has a few days to complete his mission, so before he dies, he needs to publicly unveil, publicly reveal to Israel that he is her king. That comes out of those instructions he gives to the disciples. Verse 30, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat, Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this the Lord has need of it. Now, again, that seems strange, doesn't it? I mean, the disciples are to to walk into the next town without asking anybody. They are to untie a donkey that clearly belongs to somebody else. And if anybody should challenge them why they are taking the beast, they are not to make apologies. They're not to ask permission. They're not to offer to buy the thing. No. Simply say this, the Lord needs it. Jesus has given many commands before in His earthly ministry, but never a command to take something that belonged to someone else. Is the Lord Jesus being serious here? Isn't this a kind of a stealing Well, no, it's not stealing when the command comes from Israel's king, you see. That's the difference. This is actually the right of every king, technically called the royal right of expropriation. Kings of old did this on a regular basis, and even governments can still do it today. If, if the, believe it or not, if the government wanted your land, your property, or your vehicle, they could expropriate it they could take it they would pay you the value for it but they they have the right to expropriate certain things that belong to private citizens and kings of old they they might return it later they might give monetary composition uh, compensation but no one denied that they had the right to take what belonged to private citizens for their own use. That's why Jesus doesn't ask, and He doesn't apologize. He says, only tell them the Lord has need of it. The king needs what you have, so let me have it. He's establishing His royal credential. Only Jesus is not an ordinary king. That shows in the command that He gives to His disciples, He gives them explicit and specific information about what exactly they will find there in the village. Jesus says, on entering the village, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now, how would Jesus know that? He hasn't been to Jerusalem in months, and it's very particular. The colt won't be grazing in a field or behind the buildings. The colt won't be untied. It will be tied. And you'll see it as soon as you enter the village. Jesus couldn't text ahead to confirm all these details. No, what we see here is Christ... The king, speaking with absolute confidence, absolute authority, he does it in the same way that on an earlier occasion, Luke 5, he could say to the disciples, throw your nets on the other side of the boat and you will catch fish. They did so and they hauled in, as you know, an enormous catch that broke the nets apart even though they had fished all night and caught nothing. What we have here, brothers and sisters, is the royal prerogative, the, the divine royal prerogative of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, being exercised. He even anticipates the question that the disciples will receive. He's showing himself to be the king, not of an earthly kingdom, but of heaven's kingdom. No earthly king could have known what he knew. No earthly king could have guaranteed the details that Jesus guarantees. Go, and you'll find everything exactly like I've told you. Isn't that a great encouragement for us? I mean, just think that through for a moment. How different our king, King Jesus, is from all the other rulers of the earth human kings human rulers are limited in so many ways they're limited by their authority they're limited by their power they're limited by what they know they can lay their plans but plans can be changed and altered by so many factors outside their control things don't always go as we plan i mean just look at the war in the ukraine i don't think putin planned for it to last more than a year prime ministers and presidents and dictators are all forced to react to the actions of others which they cannot control and often not foresee. Well, not so with King Jesus. He's got no need to react because He already knows what will take place. King Jesus is in charge, and now as our ascended King, King of the whole world, The Lord Jesus, He continues to unfold His plan day by day in all areas of life, our personal lives, but the lives of all people in the world. Men make their decisions and lay their plans, but above it all stands our King determining the events according to His good and holy and righteous will. Is that not a comfort for us? We live in uncertain, dangerous times, don't we? I mean, there's this war in the Ukraine. There's tensions with China over Taiwan. Constant war threat in North Korea. There's recently military escalation in Palestine and Israel. Even Iran is getting into the action, shooting down certain things that belong to the U.S. With all these things going on, who has any confidence in tomorrow? We do. We do. Because we know who's on the throne. This king who can command fish in the sea and arrange for a colt to be tied and do so many thousands and millions of other details unfolding his plan. King Jesus commands every tomorrow. That's why we have confidence in tomorrow until the last tomorrow comes when He will arrive in person to usher in the glory and the wonder of the kingdom of God. That's why we have hope. That is, He is our hope. And yet for all of that, the world does not recognize Jesus as King because He's not like the kings of the earth. His kingdom does not originate from the earth. It doesn't function like human kingdoms. Christ shows that too in the animal that He chooses on this occasion. It was very clearly His intention to to ride into Jerusalem in a public display of His royalty, but the ride He chooses, that's no ordinary ride, is it? I mean, again, think of earthly kings and rulers. They like to travel with an entourage, a royal entourage. They have lots of security. They have lots of men running before them, hailing them as king in the ancient world. Or you can think of our modern world. We had President Biden here in Canada a few days ago. He comes with his own entourage, a presidential motorcade, and, and people running alongside the vehicles, and the red carpet is rolled out. Leaders like to come with a show of strength, a show of power. Even faithful Israelite kings would do this. They would display their royalty with with a loud, boisterous parade, a, a victory parade if they could, praising God for establishing their throne over against the enemy. So kings like the pomp and the circumstance and the glory Well, how different then is the arrival of this king into his own city? The great son of David leaves aside all the pomp and the glory and the honor, and he expropriates the lowliest of animals, a donkey. Actually, Luke tells us it's a a colt. That's just a, a baby donkey, just a little one. Now, normally, any animal that would carry a king would need to be well-trained. It would need to be one of the most experienced and trustworthy beasts. You didn't want the animal to buck off the king after all. But here, Jesus calls for an untested, nobody had ever written it, an untested baby donkey. He doesn't go in for the stallion, the seven-foot-high stallion that will impress everybody. He goes in for the the four foot high, foal of a donkey. Not very impressive, is it? It's okay to take your kids and give them a pony ride. Kids like that, but a full-grown man on a pony? and This isn't even a pony. It's a, a donkey. It's a beast of burden. Donkeys were useful, but they were not particularly impressive. And a colt would be less so. So it's, it's the humblest of the animals he could have chosen to ride. Who would choose such an animal to, to make his royal entrance into Jerusalem? Who would do that? What kind of king is this? Well, brothers and sisters, this is the king of heaven's kingdom. He's got a totally different way of doing things. Than the earthly kings. This is the king long before, foretold by the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, which we read, verse 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is this victorious king who will rule supreme. Zechariah continues I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall also be cut off. He, this king, shall speak peace to all the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That reminds you of Psalm 72. This king who comes in on this little bitty donkey is going to achieve this massive victory that no human king had ever achieved before, peace among the nations. How is he going to do that? It's not going to be through a human mechanism. He will bring peace, but it will not be through a military campaign. It won't be with soldiers and chariots and horses and all kinds of weaponry No, the king will achieve his victory in a way that no earthly king ever would think possible and would never want to try this king will do it through his personal affliction this king will achieve victory through suffering and humiliation that is the message that's the message of the approach this humble approach that king jesus makes to jerusalem a message that the people did not understand we often refer to the lord's entry into jerusalem as the triumphal entry it's even got that little subtitle in our bibles the triumphal entry it's called that often because he's welcomed and cheered by the crowds as king. They even shout out, verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So even though Jesus takes the lowliest of animals to show his kingship, the, the crowds do understand the symbolism from Zechariah. They know that much, at least. They celebrate his arrival. They also take note of the route that he comes in on. King Jesus rides, we're told, from the Mount of Olives. Anytime you read about the Mount of Olives in Scripture, you should perk up your ears because it's, there's a lot of touch points in the Old Testament prophecies that include Mount, the Mount of Olives. Well, the Lord Jesus, He rides down the Mount of Olives, which was the mountain next to the, the mountain where Jerusalem was built on, He rides down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, up into Jerusalem, where the temple is located. That route was loaded with significance. It was the same route that King David, his father, had traveled in reverse to flee Jerusalem. You remember that? In the days of his son Absalom, Absalom had sparked and and organized a coup, a rebellion, and so David left the city, and he went down to the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, and out. Ezekiel also sees a vision toward the end of his book of the glory of the Lord coming back to Jerusalem. Earlier it had left. He sees it coming back. It comes back, the glory of the Lord, over the Mount of Olives, over the valley of the Kidron Valley, and into Jerusalem. So for a Jewish crowd familiar with the prophecies, at least to some extent, it was not hard to put two and two together. Jesus mounted up on a donkey's foal, and now He's coming down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. This is special. Whatever else it is, it's special, it's royal. Indeed, this is what many had been hoping for, the arrival of the Messiah King. Here He is. That's why they're singing and dancing and praising and laying their coats on the ground. Well, what was it that got them so excited? What, what did they think they saw? What kind of king did they think Jesus was? Well, what they're thinking comes out in verse 37. The whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Here it comes. For all the mighty works that they had seen. So the crowds, they're seeing Jesus humbly go down the trail into the city, down the Mount of Olives, on a foal of a donkey. They see him in his humble condition, but what they're thinking is his power. They had seen him heal the sick, make the lame walk, give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf. They had even seen... The dead come back to life they were praising God because of the power of Jesus that they had seen but what did they think of the preaching of Jesus they loved his power what about the message for Jesus had done all those powerful works those miracles He had done so in order to prove His point, or you could say, authenticate His message. What was His message? Repentance. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus had gone through the back alleys of Israel up north in Galilee. He had searched for the lost sheep. He had called out to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and everybody else, too, Calling them to seek forgiveness in him. But all the crowds could think of at this moment was his might. This man can raise the dead. So surely Jesus has the capability to overthrow the Romans. This man can cast out demons. So surely he can cast out the oppressor from our land. Hail the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He's going to get rid of our enemy for us. The crowds are quoting from Psalm 118. We'll sing it a bit later. The psalm 118 is, is a victory psalm where the king is celebrating victory over the enemies, and they thought that Jesus was, was, the, was announcing victory, but what they didn't understand was that the victory would be accomplished in a totally different way than they ever thought. Zechariah alludes to that different way in chapter 9, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It was the blood of the covenant that would bring freedom to the people. The crowd wanted the warrior king, but they ignored the type of war the king had to fight. The people saw Rome, they saw the armies of Rome as the enemy, but the ultimate enemy was far more devastating Satan and sin. That was the enemy they failed to recognize. The people thought that the way to victory lay in taking up arms, but the way to the true victory was for this king to lay down his arms, to lay down his defenses, to lay down even his life. The way to defeat Satan and sin was for this king to offer his precious blood as the blood of the covenant, the blood that flowed in his veins. That was how he was going to do it. But the people were fixated on the the power of Jesus. Well, nothing really new there. People then, people today, still love displays of power, right? Physical power. Intellectual power. We like the Jordan Petersons of the world. Emotional power. It's not hard to be attracted to power. Also among Christians, power draws us like iron to a magnet. I mean, who isn't fascinated by stories of miraculous healing or sudden conversions at altar calls or speaking in tongues or when the music lifts you up and takes you to a higher place and you experience that emotional power? Believers and unbelievers alike share an attraction to powerful experiences, powerful things, powerful people. But what about that unseen power, that that power that doesn't, doesn't look like much on the surface, the unseen power of the cross? What about that? What about the single greatest miracle that ever has taken place on the whole earth A miracle that took the most power of all. The suffering and death of the Son of God, which brought about the forgiveness of all of our sins. The crowd was interested in the power of Jesus to fix the physical. Get Rome out of our country. But they were not interested in the power to fix the spiritual sin out of our hearts. Are we? Are we? Is, is that the kind of king we want? They wanted a king who could make them healthy and strong, successful on earth. But he was calling them to God's kingdom to humbly serve their God, to love their God and neighbor. Which kingdom do we want? the kingdom of power on earth or the kingdom of heaven where sin no longer reigns. The people rejoiced in the power of Jesus but not in the mission of Jesus. And that made this reception a hollow reception for the king. Their praise was offered in ignorance and unbelief. How do we know that? Well, only days later, five days later, the crowd ushered him out of the city of Jerusalem. They ushered him out not as king, but as a criminal carrying his cross to Golgotha. Soon, these crowds would outright reject him in hatred, just as the Pharisees were already doing. That perhaps is the one reaction in our text that we could have seen coming, verse 39. We read there, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell your disciples to pipe down. Keep quiet. The Pharisees had heard the crowd singing the words of Psalm 118, proclaiming this Jesus as their king. The Pharisees knew that the song of the Messiah, uh, the song 118, was about the Messiah. And that connection to Jesus absolutely affronted them. It, It offended them. This man, Israel's king. This man from Nazareth, the Messiah. This man coming in the name of the Lord. That's a joke. Rabbi Rebuke your disciples. It's a joke. These Pharisees, as a group, we know from the Gospels, had long hated Jesus. As early as Luke 6, they were already plotting what they might do to him to get rid of him. And now, in their last formal appearance in Luke's Gospel, they close out their reaction to Jesus in the same manner it's it's hateful rejection. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You are not king. You are not arriving here in the Lord's name. You're not the fulfillment of Psalm 118. You are not the Messiah. Rabbi, call off this charade. Call off this blasphemy. But Christ does not call it off. Jesus cannot... Call it off. Why? Because every word that people say is true, though they don't understand it all, and they've got a surface opinion of Him, it's all true what they say, and it must be said, Jesus now tells the Pharisees, if they don't proclaim Me as King, then the very stones will come alive and proclaim, because everybody must understand, that is what I am. My kingdom is here already. I am the king of God's kingdom. You've got to understand that and you've got to understand the kind of king I am so that you may be blessed in the end. You can't stay in your confusion. You can't stay in your unbelief or you will surely perish. Christ enters Jerusalem as her humble king. Bringing with him righteousness and peace through the shedding of his very own blood. So we could ask is there triumph? Is this truly a triumphal entry? Well, yes, on the one hand, there is triumph, for Jesus is moving closer to his victory. He's only five days out now from the cross. But on the other hand, the way to this victory is through suffering and humiliation. And Jesus experiences that humiliation even as He's riding the colt. It doesn't feel like a triumph at that moment because He's deeply misunderstood. The crowds don't get Him. The disciples, his 12 disciples, will soon abandon him. One of the 12 even will betray him. And the leaders, these Pharisees, they actually get him. They understand the connection to Psalm 118. They get the connection. They get the claim, but they don't want him. Do you want him, brothers and sisters? Do you see here your Savior riding on the foal of a donkey? Do you see him now as the man of sorrows? riding into the arms of rejection and hatred, riding to the cross for you, for me. Do you see Him? Then love Him all the more on account of it. See Him afflict Himself as low as He could go, in order to raise you and me up, in order to bring us peace with our God and a place in His kingdom, in order to bring us an eternal peace inside of an eternal and glorious kingdom where there will be no sin and no consequences of sin, just the Lord and us on the new earth. Love Him for that. And sing then all glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made loud Hosanna's ring. Thou art the King of Israel, thou David's royal son, who in the Lord's name comest, the King and Blessed One. He came once into Jerusalem. In a triumph of sorts, he will come again to the whole earth in a triumph the world has never yet seen. It's coming. Amen.